You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hi, everyone. You are in luck. We have a second episode this week. I recorded this conversation with Jenna Arnold a few months ago, but her new book, Raising Our Hands is out now and truly feels more timely than ever. Raising Our Hands is described as a, quote, reckoning call for white women. It asks us to step up and join the new front lines in the fight against complacency in our homes, in our behaviors, and in our minds. Powerful stuff, right? Jenna is an educator, an entrepreneur, and a longtime activist and a mother. Oprah named her one of her 100 awakened leaders who are using their voice and talent to elevate humanity. And over the years, my friendship with Jenna has certainly elevated so many important thoughts, ideas, and practices in my own life. I really loved this conversation. And ladies, I am sure you will too. I'm excited about the subject matter of your book and the conversation that we're going to have today. I feel like before we get into it, we should we should take people back a little bit. And it's funny because I started thinking about this and realized that I couldn't put my finger on it. I was like, wait, where did we even meet? Like, where did we do that? Do you remember? I don't even remember. I just feel like you've always been here. I think um, it must have been Summit. Yeah. One of the conferences, maybe. I don't know, actually. I <laughs> like the real first time that I feel like I entered your world is, oh, um, okay. I think the first time we kind of sort of hung out was in Israel on the Schuster, on that Schusterman trip. And I wasn't on it, but I came to hang out with you guys. 
But then I also remember coming to your house for a Johnny Swim concert. Yeah. And home, which is like still in my top 10. God, they're the best. They're the best. They're the best. Yeah. And I'm so <laughs> happy about their success. Me too. So happy about their success. But I don't know if I can think of like the first, first, first time, but I think I like throw the bone to Summit. They probably deserve it. Yeah, I definitely, I know was a it was a conference gathering of some sort. And then we were in touch or we were in touch on activist stuff. And then, yeah, it was, it was really when we were, halfway around the world that we got to really hang. Right. And I think what I find happening that I've found throughout my professional career is like, I just gravitate toward sisters of the same tribe of women who are like, I could sort of call and their emotions or their frustration or their confusion or whatever has is either at the same octave as mine or has been there before and they can help with guidance and, or like the, if, I asked you how you were, you could probably answer the same question for me, right? Like, or if I could, if I asked you about what the state of the world was and whatever your answer was, like, I could probably copy and paste that if someone asked the same. Yeah, we we're so lucky. I feel like over the last decade, especially a really incredible group of smart women have kind of magnetized, you know, we've, we've circled up in a way that has been really motivating and also really healing because when I'm, when I feel like I'm on the precipice of just losing my mind at the state of the world, I, I always know that I can call you and that you'll be like, girl, same, but here's why we're going to be okay. <laughs> and I value that. So, I so actually much. will say, and we can, pro- we can save this for later, but like, I actually think that the world hasn't done that hard left turn that I think we're about to, like, I don't think we've actually seen anything yet. And it's going, it's going to be so important. I always think about my relationships with Um, women from this specific family, which I consider you a member. And whenever I have my moments of being insecure or being um, confused or curious or often just raging, I know knowing that that you are too, and that so many of of our other sisters are too, just blows the wind in my sails. Today, I got an email from a friend who she's a very successful entrepreneur um, you all know her company. And if, and some of her investors are trying to reorganize her cap table and she's infuriated. And I wrote her a text message back and I was like, hold the line, do not move. All of your sisters are standing behind you, blowing wind in yourselves. Do not move, do not move. And I often have to think of like, not only my ancestors and the good things that they did and the things that I have to make up for in this lifetime, but also the women who are with me in this life, standing behind me, blowing wind in myself. Yeah. And, and we can't do this without each other. And I think now more than ever, at least my hope is that we're realizing that we can't do this without each other, without our tribes, without our teams, but that we're all really on a big team together. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, I think about us doing a lot of activist work together about the the places that we show up and the people that we show up for, whether it's, you know, marching together at the first women's march. It's crazy to me that it's been over three years, you know, I, I could really go down the list, but I'm, I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the organization of that, the mobilization of 
women in response to what's happening to the world. And and then I'm really going to want to back up farther, but I do feel like that's kind of an amazing place to start. Yeah. So one of the things that I dive into in great depth in the book is this idea that now is a different time in human history in that we can now look back at history, ask more difficult questions about motivations, agendas, what did and didn't actually happen, make really smart conclusions, both from an academic and a moral perspective, and and then also potentially apply some of those learnings to the future. In addition to that, we're more connected now than we ever been, both by this this concept of a pandemic, forget the fact that there's a name for it and everybody knows it, um, that there is this sudden like, wow, there are no boundaries and everybody is um, vulnerable. Clearly there's more marginalized populations and there's this internal, what I like to say about what happened on January 21st, 2017 at the Women's March, the largest protest in human history, that Every time I ask somebody why they showed up, they sort of stumble through an answer and it's never articulate. And it's always like, well, because I had to, and because something was wrong. And, and it's really comes down to this like mammalistic drumbeat that's happening in our chest bones of like, uh, uh-uh, not, no, not now I have to do something. I'm not sure what it is, but I have to be in community with other people who might reflect my confusion and my my desire for a better world. And then since then, for the past three years, all I've seen in my research for this book, I've done listening circles across the country, asking primarily white women very existential questions, like what are you willing to fight for? What stereotype about you is true? And at the end of every listening circle, they're all like, I want to talk about this more. I want to do more. How can I get in the game? What do I do to be a part of something bigger than myself? And so from that moment in Washington, D.C., when I stood on stage and looked out at a sea of millions of pink hats, and then later that day came to a television screen of a grid of every city around the world and was blown away by it, to what happened this past Saturday when I was doing a virtual workshop and I capped the Zoom RSVP or the Zoom room for only 100 people. And like 700 women tried to log in to participate in a conversation about white women holding white women accountable and what that means. And so again, everybody's pulse is um, thumping differently today. And we have access to different information and we're more connected than we've ever been. So there's this huge opportunity. And I genuinely believe it's a very short window, like as in a couple of years, like a single digit amount of years for us to actually hold the front line and keep pushing forward. Hmm. To hold the front line and continue to push feels like a really, really important call to action. That resonates very deeply with me. Yeah. And I think one of the things that one of the ideas that I've been wrestling with, and as I try to answer a lot of these women in these conversations, when they say things like, well, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. I think that we all need to be looking for front lines in places where we haven't traditionally. So civic engagement for decades and generations have been voting, calling your senator in the recent years and in, in the 60s, marching, donating to different organizations. 
But to me, that's like so super obvious, like next, please. Like what's the real work? And what I'm calling my reader and um, women who look like me and have had similar life experiences to me in this country is to see if we can find new front lines to do civic work, which isn't like, oh, let me go find another preschool to do another fundraiser for. Yeah, that's great and important and do it. But it's really to hold ourselves accountable and examine our biases, examine how we're making excuses for our institutions or the, men's, the men in our life, um, how we're checking out, very much thinking about our behaviors and our thoughts um, as it relates to the most marginalized, as it relates to our insecurities, as it relates to our role in the world, to um, th- that's where the front lines are. That's where it's, I always say it's probably at your front lines in the room with you. Hmm. Okay. So we're, we're talking today and, and you're in a place of perspective on the systems that we all partake in, whether consciously or unconsciously. Where did this kind of passion for change and the desire to fight for others come from? Was, was this in you always, you know, was, was 10 year old Jenna out there banging pots and pans, you know, trying to call attention to social issues? Yeah. So there was this book I had, I had trouble reading. I couldn't read until I was 11. <laughs> and for context for those listeners who are in the education space, the um, average reader starts at around five or six. Um, so I couldn't read for a while. So I was really passionate about like finding other ways to engage and, and participate in the subjects in school. And there was this book, I think it's titled 365 Ways to Make the to save the world or to make the world better. It was some sort of environmental book. And it was like, put a brick in your toilet to displace a certain percentage of water because it's like every, you know, toilets, if you flush them, it's like seven gallons of water. Right. Or right. sure that you're cutting the six pack, you know, that plastic thing that holds hands together. And so I would like, I was doing that. I re- destroyed a couple of toilets because the brick idea doesn't actually make sense because brick is clay and it dissolves and destroys toilets of which my father won't let me forget. But there was just like all these things of like, you can do this to save the rainforest. Like that was the big thing when I was a kid was saving the rainforest. Mm. I always think like, when can we just go back to saving the rainforest? And so, yeah, it was. And I do think a lot about why I was so obsessive about so many of those things because I don't, I didn't see it reflected in a lot of my immediate world, but I, I, there was definitely a calling to, um, there was definitely a calling that pulled me to a place of you got some work to do here. Mm, I felt that too, that, that national geographic VHS box set of six videos. I watched the one on the rainforest, I think until the tape burned through. Right. And I, and I just, I was inconsolable about the fact that it was being cut down and my parents, you know, would just look at me with a sort of horror of like, what do we do with this child who won't stop crying about these trees? Right. right. So yeah, yeah, I feel that very deeply. And, and just to be clear, like I do order a lot online and I do have lock boxes that show up at my front door. And so in holding myself accountable, I'm not necessarily protecting the rainforest the way that I would like to. I mean, I think, again, we haven't really designed a world that makes it easy for us. And as humans, 
We need to create systems that make it simpler to live better and in better communion with the planet. We, we just do because we can't, we can't be, you know, filling our toilets with bricks. Right. <laughs> Aside from being very annoyed with you for doing that, what, what were your parents like? Where did you grow up? What was, what was kind of the, the world around you? I was, I had a very average suburban childhood. I grew up outside of Philadelphia to an architect and a uh, nurse. And um, I had a lot of after school sports and I came from a huge family and we spend our summers together at the beach house. And that was always really important because I knew that no matter what happened to me, I'd always have a couch that I could sleep on or there was always a safe. So having um, the safety net of extended families and I guess their couches always let me jump um, off of slightly more steep cliffs. And my parents, I think, probably looked at you the same way with just like, oh, that's cute. She cares about the rainforest. <laughs> I guess we'll get her some, you know, tropical birds for her birthday or like it wasn't, they didn't. And then when I was in high school, I decided that I needed to see more of the world. And my mom said, it was always like you were a caged tiger. And like, there was just so much for you to go and see and consume and eat and prowl. And so when I was 15, I moved to Spain by myself, which I cannot believe my parents let me do. And then 16, I know. What are you talking about? Like in the summer for summer school? What are you saying to me? Like uh, 11th, 10th grade and then 11th grade France. I mean, it was crazy. And sometimes I say to my dad, like, what were you thinking? He's like, I don't, I don't actually know. I just knew that you were capable, I guess. And, and you went there for school? Yeah, I went there for school. Because what kind I, of schools? I don't, I, I honestly don't understand what you're saying to me. It's like you're speaking another language. I went, it was like, it was all, it was like an abroad program. Mm. And I lived abroad when I was 15. And a lot of the 15 year olds I know today, I look at them and I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure I would let you go live in Spain by yourself. So yeah, so I went and lived in a small town outside of Barcelona where they speak Catalan, I went to learn Spanish. And I quickly realized after I landed at the airport that they don't speak Spanish. Well, they speak Spanish as a second language in, uh, in Barcelona, they speak Catalan. So I was really in over my head. <laughs> Were, what inspired you to do this? Why, why did you pick Spain and then France? Did you have role models you were looking at? Were you, were you in love with the stories of writers who'd moved to Europe to be creative? What, what prompted this? Well, I think the best way I can answer it is very much couched in a lot of the things that I talk about in the book of what I had access to and what I was exposed to. And Europe, Spain, we'll call it Great Britain, but people would just typically say London maybe uh, France, maybe a little bit Germany, like that's where the rest of the world was. And there wasn't something that was like, and there's this other continent south of it in the Southern hemisphere with 57 other countries, or let's talk about the huge, you know, Russian continent or Southeast Asia. Oh, and Central and South America. So I think it was just like the only place to go to get out of my country which I, in retrospect, I don't have an appreciation for 
I didn't have an appreciate appreciation for it then, but do now is that it was part of this process of me seeing my homeland from a foreign shore and what that meant and hearing what people had to say about Americans when I was young has very much been something that I've watched throughout my travels, throughout my life of being like, oh, what do you think of my country? Oh, what do you think of my people? Oh, what do you think of our elected officials or the reality television show that ends up on your screens? Yes, yes, yes. That's so important. Spending decades listening to people tell me what they think about me, the narrative that they've already pre-assigned to me has been very telling. Well, yeah. And it reminds us that everyone's got a narrative. Everyone's got an assumption. Everyone's got a stereotype. And we certainly don't like it when those things are put on us. So why do we put them on other people? That's right. So you, you had this experience on a class trip to Mexico city. When, when did that, when did that occur? And can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Sure. Um, that's good research. Um, <laughs> cause I'm, I'm thinking about all your travels and the way that they affected you, but this, this story feels particularly important to share this. Um, so I was, when I was in eighth grade, I went to Mexico, uh, on a class trip and I was sitting in the back of, let's say a 15 person van. And we were driving down what wasn't a major highway, but it was like an eight lane highway. And it was very busy and packed. And we ended up finding ourselves in bumper to bumper traffic. And it was unclear what was causing this traffic jam. And as we inch closer, the driver was getting more agitated and the people to our left and right were getting annoyed. And the people in the van were like, come on, come on, we're missing whatever it was they were missing. And as we got closer to what the bottleneck was, I saw a gentleman on the side of the road in the outside lane because there was no shoulders on this particular highway in his wheelchair, rolling his, his wheels incredibly hard with a tremendous urgency. And I realized that the bottleneck was being caused by this gentleman who was taking up a third of the outside lane. And I had this thought of like, well, why doesn't, as we were zooming by, well, why doesn't he just get up on the side? sidewalk. And that next immediate sidewalk that I had spotted, which was, you know, 10, 15 feet ahead of him, didn't have an on-ramp on the corner. And so I realized that this gentleman couldn't, as of how he was mobile, couldn't get up onto the sidewalk because there was no on-ramp. And as we were zooming by, I was like, oh, well, that's really easy to fix. How come no one's done that? And I realized in looking back, like that was my first human rights violation that I was really processing because this man was in jeopardy and he, there was also a tremendous amount of disruption um, caused by the things, caused by an inadequate system that wasn't allowing him to get up on the sidewalks. And so it set me off on this, like, wow, there's probably a lot of Mm. problems that have easy solutions, like on, on a sidewalk. And then if you think about the amount of people that benefit from ramps on the side of sidewalks, forget, you know, forget the the individuals who, who need them to, to, to get around, but, you know, people with strollers or the elderly who have carts that they need to wheel. So it was sort of this idea of like, oh, wow, there's probably a long list of things that need to be done in the world to go tackle them. And it's interesting too, isn't it? That sometimes as a child, you just see it so clearly where you're like, well, problem solution right there. Yeah. You're like, I don't understand. 
like that's so simple. But as you get older and you dive into those spaces, you realize everything requires policy. Every Everything requires someone to make a rule, which then allows for the decision-making process to move down, you know, downstream in the social system to allow for protections for a person like that man who is disabled to have an on-ramp for his wheelchair. It's so simple unless it isn't there. And then it's devastating. Which is why you see this rise of youth activists and women activists all around the world, right? Not just what we were doing at the Women's March years ago, but you see it in Sudan. You see it in Riyadh, seeing it in places that didn't have places, didn't have um, theater for women to rage. And you are also now seeing what's happening with the youth when they're just like, uh, let me tell you the problem. It's actually from a 30,000 foot perspective. It It's quite basic. And I do think this moment in history is, um, yeah, there's a lot of nuances to it, but, but asking the hard question of like problem A, potential solution B, and maybe the solution is like ADEFG, maybe it's further down, down the road, but, but it exists. And what's happened, I found in this country, particularly in working in the organ donation industry for a while, is that what feels like it might have an easy solution is actually way more complex than, than one initially sets out for it to be. But it's because our systems have become overcomplicated to begin with. Yes, and overcomplicated in ways that are inefficient, redundant, and in ways that they don't need to be. That's right. And so sometimes there's ways to gloss over it, like what we were organized, where there was 50, there was 52 different registries when we started organized to register to become an organ donor. They were state-based and they weren't communicating with each other. And if you look at that, you're like, well, that really doesn't make sense. So there was contemplation to merge them all or a new option, building a new one, which is a glorified Google form, obviously with lots of HIPAA requirements. And we had an amazing tech team that built, you know, a, a stunning product, which was not just a Google form, but, but this idea that like, there are things that we can just, you know what, 52 desert two registries don't work right now. Let's just make a new one. And that's in like every single silo of the country. Yes. So you see your first human rights violation and systemic failure in junior high you're talking about the ones you were working on quite recently. I know that you moved to Europe as a teenager in between, which is insane. But what what happens after that? Because obviously traveling has always been an incredibly important part of your education, both in what you've been able to see and in what you've been able to understand people see in us. So I'm curious how all of that puzzle pieces itself together to take you on your path to go to college, to be a teacher, to be the youngest American who ever worked at the United Nations? Like, how how does all of this happen? My experience seeing other people's and places and other ways of life in my early teens coming out of a really safe, secure, relatively standard childhood shook me out of this idea of there's one way to do things. 
And that layered with, oh, I see problems that possibly have easy solutions. And wow, my assumption about the way that we should be living our lives, the way that I've seen my extended family build their lives, the way that the American blueprint tells us to build our lives might not actually be in the best interest of all. And that's a pretty grand statement, but we have this idea and concept of this American exceptionalism and entitlement as if we have all of the answers and we therefore need to find ways to solve them both and whatever it is that our greatest, most powerful entity, often being governments or very powerful men with large checks, checkbooks and a tremendous amount of power, they must have all of the answers. And what I have found and what I started finding early in my life is that in fact, they don't. And in fact, you know, there's a lot of discussion around like imposter syndrome and are you really qualified to be in the position that you're in? And, um, and a part of me is like, no, nobody's ever qualified unless you have spent <laughs> a decade in you know, the medical institution to operate on brains, like even flying planes. There's so many different things that like, I actually think most people are qualified to participate in most solutions. And, and there's just this belief that there's this scaffolded system that if you haven't continued to climb these certain rungs on the ladder, that you're not, um, that you're not capable or you have no place participating. And I think that's what keeps so many women on the sidelines, particularly the most powerful demographic of women on the sidelines. Does that answer your question? It it does as far as understanding that you want to jump in. As far as saying, I I have the passion and I'm going to show up and I'm going to do this work. But I'm I'm just curious what I, I'm curious about your actual timeline. I'm curious about you come home from Europe and then what, how, how does the rest of it unfold? So I come home from Europe. Well, I first come home, came home from Mexico and I was like, Hey, there's problems that need solutions. And I remember that first Friday evening, I went to hula hands with my best friends, um, as we typically did on Friday evenings. And one of them was like, did you hear Brooke hooked up with Travis? And I looked at her and I was like, wow, I don't, I don't care. Like I did three weeks ago. I didn't care about these small, tiny things that are happening that are just sort of inconsequential to the comings and goings of the world. And so it, it made me look, my horizon just got broader and the questions I had about the world got, that list just got longer. Right. So I was studying like Mm. geographics a little bit more closely. I was really excited about trying to figure out that next place I can go. And what ended up happening, which I hear everyone say is, Oh, I caught the travel bug, right? The second you, you have an experience somewhere else that helps you come closer to yourself, that gives you a different perspective about your very specific place in society. You're like, Oh, I'm hooked. I need more of that drug. And so, um, I then moved to Europe. I went to the University of Miami where I studied elementary education and astrophysics because at the time I really wanted to be an astronaut. And my plan was to go to Rice to go into the astronaut program. And I, by my like junior year, I actually, in, 
in being quarantined, I was going through a ton of boxes and I found my report cards for my grades and I found the last physics class I took. And I was like, oh, that's why, that's why I stopped pursuing my dreams to go to outer space because I think I got like a B minus or something like that. And my friend was laughing at me like, oh, that was the end of that. And then uh, in undergrad, I traveled the world on a program known as Semester at Sea, which was a really phenomenal taste of 15 countries, something like that. Mm. And while we were abroad, uh, 9-11 happened. So we were in a couple of days out from Japan during 9-11. And I think my first stop in Japan was Hiroshima. So I came from, so it was like this very hard, I still even struggle with it today, processing what happened at home and then also being at the ground zero of um, the first nuclear bomb that was that was dropped in, in human history. And sadly, I don't believe the last. And just sort of reconciling it and looking at, there's this very specific sort of spot in a park where they say this is where the actual bomb landed. And I remember looking at the sidewalk there and seeing um, these like weeds just grow through the cracks. And, and thinking, oh, wow, life was able to come back even here. And life, therefore, is going to be able to come back even there. And no matter what, life will always find a way. And that's where I am at this moment in history where I can get very exhausted and very demoralized by how we're treating each other. And, and I still always think back, like, life will always find a way. And, and then that took me to grad school. Oh, you're, like, forcing me to clear my cobwebs of my life. And I'm scared I'm going to something. Then I went to grad school at Teachers College and studied peace education. Um, And peace education, sort of unbeknownst to me, is really the study of war. So I spent a long time diving deep into all the conflicts around the world and what that looks like and what was the foundation for countries falling into civil war. And I remember, and I reference this in Raising Our Hands, leaving grad school after talking about what the LRA did does to children involved in armed conflict in parts of Uganda and looking at these horrific photos of six-year-olds being maimed and then leaving grad school, getting on the subway to go and then pick up my dry cleaning and having to reconcile the reality that that does exist on my watch, even as I'm paying my dry cleaning bill and how to reconcile. And I still wrestle with that. And I've spent many decades of my life, I imagine sitting in this, I'm extraordinarily fortunate knowing that I stand on the shoulders of privileges that were fairly earned, but mostly not. And, you know, the state of the, the world. And so it's a really hard, it's a really hard balance. Then I worked at the United Nations and we packaged A-list celebrities with global issues, which was like the first time that that happened. How, how did working at the UN happen? How did you decide you wanted to go there? How does one get a job there? One does not get a job at the UN unless they're extraordinarily persistent. And this is <laughs> a note that I have for everyone, again, which is this like belief that there's some grand person or exam or institution that is untouchable unless you have five PhDs. No, 
in today's world, if you have an email address and access to Wi-Fi, you can Google the head of a department, their email, their LinkedIn, and you can full-blown reach out to them and pitch yourself, which is essentially what I did for many months until someone was finally like, okay, you can come and do have an internship. And what I say to young people often is when they're like, how did you get in there? How do you, when people approach me to work with me, it's, I often say yes, quite quickly. If they come to me with the idea, 60, 70% baked where they're like, Hey, I think you need to do this. This is how I would do it. This is the strategy, the timeline, how much it's going to cost. And I'm happy to own the project that gets an easy yes from me. And that's what I did at the UN. I was like, I think we should bring more celebrities together with more global issues and create curriculum and then see if we can go to places like MTV and create content around it. And they're like, go for it. And you did. And that's what we did. So what was the kind of stuff? Because you mentioned no one was doing this. No one was leveraging sort of celebrity platforms and outreach to partner with issues. So at the time, this was obviously a new... A new way to do, yeah, it was new strategy, a new way to talk about impact. So what were some of the issues that you worked on? Child soldiers, um, uh, terrorism in Northern Ireland. So this is dating me a bit. We did a great project with Jay-Z around water and sanitation. He went to two different countries in Africa and spent some days um, looking at what is required for youth to have access to water and juggle education. We did gun violence. We did sanitation-based issues. So it was really landmines in Cambodia. Um, So it was really, again, looking at a bunch of problems. If I go back to the gentleman in the wheelchair we have there's this long list of social issues and we all have to participate in solving them. And, and most of them had solutions, but bringing attention to them. I remember when I had this moment where um, Angelina Jolie, I think it was just Angelina, went to Haiti with Wyclef and there was a tiny little article about it in like a People magazine. And I was like, wait a second, People magazine will cover Angelina going to Haiti and look at some of the the living conditions there. Well, wait a second. Why doesn't Angelina just go to all these places around the world if People Magazine will come with her? Because I often thought about, one, the audience of People or Us Weekly are very privileged, well-educated, lovely intentions, well-meaning women who can do things to make the world a better place. And you saw that same demographic immediately after the Haitian earthquake, for example, donate hundreds of millions of dollars to the Haitian Relief Fund, or same thing with the tsunami in Indonesia, where I kept saying to my colleagues at the UN, y'all, only because these issues are being covered is the rest of the country now texting a pledge when that first started coming out. So many people are very willing to give their money and willing to give of themselves and the resources that they have to help solve the problem. We just have to get these stories in front of them. I mean, it's such a cool idea. And now it's obviously so ubiquitous. When you mention having been a teacher, was that before or after the UN? Where did teaching kind of fit into the equation? I was a first grade teacher after I graduated undergrad, and it is still my most favorite position. And I cannot wait to return to the classroom. Mm. 
What did you love about it? Watching the wheels spin when students are trying to process hard concepts about humanity. Because of course I closed my door and we taught off curriculum and we were studying Jane Goodall and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and just things that I happen to have been obsessed with. I had a principal who for good or for not did not care what I was doing in the classroom. So it was like off to the races. Um, And just watching them try to process good and evil, watch them find value and self-worth in doing something for another student. To me, and I still say this as I wrestle with the education of my two children, I don't really care if my daughter uh, can nail the quadratic formula. I just want her to be a good person. And I said that to the parents of my students at the first back to school night. I was like, hey, I cannot promise they're going to kill their spelling, but I promise you like they are going to have a global perspective that's going to help them find humility and responsibility. And I still talk, I still talk to those students all the time. Oh, I love that. So teaching, obviously what sticks out for me in the way that you talk about teaching is that it so obviously highlights what's important in the formation of a wholehearted human. And I think that our education system could certainly use some work to teach us how to be in the world rather than simply to teach us our multiplication tables. So I imagine that a lot of those lessons, be they, you know, full consciousness, kind of awareness, top of mind lists or more subconscious aha light bulb moments informed the work you were then doing at the UN. Well, what what happened was, is I realized that my students were craving this character-based education, mm. that, that the curriculum, the California state standards wasn't providing. And so I went rogue and did it myself. And again, I am not any smarter than anyone else who is listening to this podcast today. I just sort of figured it out. I just troubleshooted some, you know, potential scenarios and, and, um, and I realized that it was easy to scale those, that kind of education. And I said, okay, I have my 19 first graders who I'm obsessed with. And I even tried to make a deal with the the district and they almost actually, they let me do it, but I still had to leave to go to grad school. I wanted to travel with my students for like to first, uh, to second grade, to third grade, to fourth grade, just to continue to do this work with them. And, but what I realized was the lessons that I was teaching them, I could scale, um, and could get to more students more quickly or to more youth more quickly. And I had heard a statistic that Barney, the purple dinosaur was in 37 different countries, the television show and had a reach of 80 million viewers under the age of like eight or something like that. And I was like, wait a second. If I can find a value, if there's a way to scale values-based education, which, you know, 
organization like Sesame Street, and I will shamelessly plug them as I um, uh, am on their advisory board. And I think they're one of the best organizations. I love Sesame Street so much. Me too. too. And most people have no appreciation for the work that they're doing abroad. This is not just what we are seeing um, on air in the ABCs, which we are eternally grateful for, but um, they're, they're teaching dignity. And so when I realized that, I was like, oh, wait a second, let me just, let me give this scaling of character-based education a go. And then I left, went to grad school, went to UN, started doing all this character-based education, sort of in, in People Magazine and with uh, American women, and then uh, came up with my own television concept where we took spoiled American teenagers to live with indigenous cultures around the world and used one of my cousins as a guinea pig for the pilot. And we went over to Kenya to live with the Maasai. And she went through a modern day coming of age ceremony. And in some communities, in some Maasai communities in sub-Saharan Africa, they circumcise women. And this one particular family in the Maasai community was raised their hand not to do that anymore. And so they came up with a, um, a pseudo coming of age ceremony and rites of passage ceremonies are so important in society. And I don't think we have enough of them. And so I put my cousin through this parallel, um, coming of age ceremony, obviously both the Maasai and my cousin Sam's circumcision and shot that when I was like 24. And I sold that trailer to MTV and turned that into a television series known as Exiled. Hmm. How do you look back on that experience now? Because I think about our increased awareness and and sensitivity to understanding our impact, you know, traveling into communities, traveling into indigenous cultures. Are there are there things that stand out to you that really worked as an education piece of that show? When you think back on your like twenty four year old idea, are there things you would do differently? I'm I'm curious, like how do, how does that hold up now? I don't know if I would do that again. I don't know if I would do that again. I have spent a lot of time with indigenous communities throughout my career, both at the UN and in research for this book. I spent a lot of time on the Diné Reservation, also known as the Navajo uh, Reservation. And and the role that primarily white people play in coming into their communities, and um, at least for what it was that I did, however long ago it was for this television series, uh, wouldn't hold up to my moral and ethical bar anymore. You know, we were, there's, there's this fine balance between educating people about a community. And I was obsessed with the preservation of indigenous languages and the preservation of culture, also trying to find ways to wedge uh, women and girls' rights into those things. But that really isn't my work to be done. And those aren't my stories to tell. Surely not to create a, a piece of content and then to, to um, then air it on MTV. But I, I will say that MTV has at that time had a spectacular viewership worldwide. And there were many viewers who signed up to join the Peace Corps, which is a two and a half year commitment in a rural community somewhere in the world. So it's not to to, um, be balked at. And then there were other viewers who were like, oh, I didn't realize Africa was a continent. I thought it was just a country, right? So there's this huge spectrum of responses from viewers. And then one of the other Um, full circle moments for me with regards to the show is I was in Bahrain and I came across a camel farmer 
And he was like, oh, you're American. I just finished watching this television show about this girl who went to Thailand and she started crying because of the risk of malaria and da, 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 da. And I was like, oh, that's my show. And he started laughing. He's like, and you Americans had that coming. You guys have such lessons to learn about the, way, the, the state of the rest of the world. And I had this moment of like, oh, is, this, is there a foreign policy element here in this content about watching Americans go through um, very humbling experience about their privilege? Um, <laughs> and I think there is. That's very cool. So what's the path from the UN and content creation to organize? So I, when I created this television show titled Exiled, I left the UN to produce and direct it. And then I created a boutique content creation firm to help nonprofits, celebrities, sort of tell their story better. This is my issue. This is a workshop that I was on last night. One of the top organizations in the world that no peace building organizations in the world that nobody knows about. They participated in the negotiations in Rwanda between the Hutu and the Tutsis. They're on the front lines of what's happening in Yemen with the Rohingya and nobody knows about them. So I'm always like the people who are doing God's work. Nobody knows their stories and nobody knows how to get behind them and support them and people want to. And so I'm, I became very passionate about finding issues that I could help market and communicate, again, the 5,000-foot perspective and the 35,000-foot perspective on the issue and mobilizing more people and resources around it. And then I got connected with my co-founder, Greg, whose father waited uh, five years for a heart. And admittedly, I wasn't particularly interested in the organ donation crisis in this country. I was, my eyes had always sort of been abroad. You know, I was like, well, let's talk about, you know, water and sanitation in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, or let's talk about landmines, or let's talk about saving the whales. Organ donation, I feel like that's probably, you know, far down on my list of things that I I wanted to try to tackle. But after a couple of months of really workshopping what the potential solutions were, I had this very, this moment of clarity that, oh, wait a second, there's actually some really concrete turnkey solutions that can be applied here that could not just solve a problem, but could expedite and catapult the state of organ donation crisis to a place of not at some point in my lifetime, but in my very near lifetime. What interests me about those things, because I, I began so much of my activist work abroad as well, and the, the light bulb moment for me was when I realized that I have always had this really ridiculous assumption that here in this very privileged country, there were obviously adults in charge of our problems. There was somebody responsible handling things here. Yeah, there's a them. And you realize, especially since 2016, there is no them. There is literally nobody who is optimizing our systems. There's, there, there just aren't. And so that, to, to your earlier point about how you have to find the new front lines, you have to find, you know, the moms in every community that are working on fixing problems, the people who are dealing with housing crises, homelessness, gun violence, there are, there are all these boots on the ground everywhere because so many of our systems are broken. And you, I'm so lucky because of our friendship and our overlap when you were starting Organize and launching the program, for me to hear in real time 
how utterly inefficient and non-communicative across even state lines, as you said, our organ donation and harvesting program is in America was so shocking to me. Like the fact that all these organs go to waste when people are dying waiting for organs was just bonkers. And one of the things that I loved was seeing how easy you made it for anyone to join a registry by simply sending a tweet, by posting an Instagram, like anything. Once you posted something, it was it was in a national data bank and problem solved if, you know, God forbid you were ever in a fatal car accident or whatever. There, there was an answer and an immediate solution. How, how, did you, how did you guys come to understand, as you said, that this could be solvable, not even in your lifetime, but in the immediate future? Well, I think the lessons that I took from when I stepped up to that plate that I can apply to today is that some of the systems are so broken that it's almost like just scrap the whole thing and start over, which is for some of the technicalities of registering to become an organ donor, how you're declaring your end of life wishes to your next of kin. Like that was easy. That was easy to do. Some of the policy related efforts that we have been working on are still ongoing. And I had made a commitment to the organ donation community and to my partner um, that I was going to give this issue five years and no more. And we were like, oh yeah, we can wrap this up in five years. And like, we potentially could have if 2016 looked a little different, but it's still, it's still an ongoing process. And then what's ultimately happening is that once you're like, okay, I solved that. You're like, oh, wait a second. But there's that one thing right behind it that maybe if we just that's which we could increase it by another, we could save taxpayers billions of dollars. Okay, wait, but what's right behind that? And so what I found is that there's there's definitively no them, particularly when there is an assumption, particularly when an industry or a system is being run by organization and institutions that are employing people who have to secure healthcare and have to secure food on their tables. There's not a lot of encouragement to rock the boat and to challenge and to ask harder questions. And and that's just not how the American narrative and system is structured that says, if you're a junior person, you should ask the hardest question to the most senior person. Like That's just not how our government's uh, org charts are situated. But but what I found is that it's much easier to maneuver when you're sitting on the edge of the sandbox versus in the smack middle of it. It's that same experience when you get on a flight and you start talking to the person next to you and you tell them all of your woes and they can just start poking holes and setting the record real straight, real quick. Like almost the further outside of the system, are, the the easier it is to maneuver. And so we as an organization definitely stayed on the outside and we were constantly reminded like, you haven't paid your dues. You are not in the inside. You do not know what you're talking about. And that was just like intentionally. So, and what you said earlier about boots on the ground, there is no them that's going to fix it. And sometimes there are, right? Like there's amazing women on the front lines of the labor and delivery crisis in this country where we have, where black women are three to four times more likely to die in pregnancy related deaths than their white women, even if they have like two or three higher degrees of education Mm -hmm. in New Mm -hmm. York city, 12, there's amazing 
women on the front line solving those problems. So the them exists in that situation. And our responsibility to them is get resources and to do what it is that they say that they need, which is a very unique position. But in some cases, like who's making sure that there's healthier food at your kid's school? Who's taking care of the elderly down the street? Who's like, there's no them there. That's you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so incredibly important to identify those pockets and those varying degrees of tangible activists that might be around you because so many people to your point say, I want to help and don't know where to start. And and some of the best advice I've ever heard is help the helpers show up and help the people who are already working on this, Yeah, which leads us to the book, the book. I'm so excited to talk about the book. So for our listeners, Jenna wrote this incredible book. It's called Raising Our Hands, How White Women Can Stop Avoiding Hard Conversations, Start Accepting Responsibility, and Find Our Place on the New Front Lines. And you mentioned it earlier that after 2016, after women who look like you and who look like me realized that so many women who look like us betrayed us and really betrayed women, but obviously didn't think that that's what they were doing. Like, I... I don't imagine that many of the percentage of white women, you know, 63 plus percent who voted for Donald Trump thought, I'm absolutely going to sell out women and the environment and my communities and my education system and healthcare. And, and, and by voting for this man, I'm going to vote to close down the pandemic response networks. And I don't think people got it, but We've also heard a lot of really compelling arguments that explain what proximal power looks like in the structure of white supremacy and and the patriarchy. And so you took the shock that so many of us felt and said, I'm going to go interview all these women and figure out why they did this. Why, Why did this feel like a reasonable option rather than voting for a woman? Like what how, why? Mm-hmm. So you you picked up and you went on these listening tours all across the country. Where did you go and what kinds of women were you seeking out to speak to? What ended up happening immediately after the women's, well, there was the election November 8th, 2016, on November 9th, when some of the data was coming through. And it was saying there was numbers that were saying between 52 and 54% of white female voters voted for Trump. That mixed with a lot of the difficult conversations I was having in my own family. As I mentioned earlier, I come from a very large family. My mom is one of nine. It's not that simple, but one of nine for, for, for the point of this conversation. And some of them voted for Trump. I mean, these are human beings who loved me and raised me and produced me, right? Produced like raging, we have to go, we do bricks in the toilet to offset, you know, the amount of water waste every time we flush. Jenna still pulled the lever for Trump. And so take knowing who they were and their kindness and their love and their good intention and how they've been such a phenomenal support system and cheerleaders for me over the years, watching them pull the the lever, hoping in my head, it was just the four of them, right? Like just those four women are the only women in America that were 
God forbid, would be pulling the lever for Trump. And then seeing how many women showed up at the Women's March and looking at it as a sea of, while a lot of pink hats worn by a tremendous amount of white women. And I couldn't reconcile um, the women I know who did vote for Trump, who were are phenomenal and loving and all of the good things, women, human beings, with what I what I knew in my bones he stood for. And then watching so many of them show up on the streets, it just the math wasn't adding up. And what's interesting is right after the Women's March, I went and um, spent some time with the organizers of the Women's March in Wyoming. So just so we're clear, the national team only organized one march in Washington, D.C. We picked a cross street. We picked a logo. We created messaging. And then all these 667 other marches worldwide were organized by other women in that zip code, in that city. And so in this one town in Cheyenne, Wyoming, there uh, were a handful of organizers. Mind you, Wyoming is the reddest state in the country. And they expected 250 people to show up and 2,500 people showed up. And they were telling me, like, and everybody voted for, for Donald Trump in that election. So even people who weren't necessarily aligned with the messaging of why we were marching and protesting that day still showed up. And so trying to reconcile the voting behaviors with the amount of love intention and intention that I found with the women I knew in my life who had ultimately voted for him, I, and there was no data that existed in this going back to the who's the them. So I he- I've heard for years from activists of color who have said, you know, white people go get white people, white women go get white women. What, what's going on with your cousins? What's going on? And I never really understood what that meant. And so right after the women's march, I was like, all right, who's going to ask the hard questions of white women. And I like had this moment where I was um, looking around, like peering over fences, like who's doing the work so I can sign up for the listserv, donate the money, help the helpers. And I realized that nobody was. Mm. So we have this statistic around white American voters that surfaces during the midterms and during the presidential. And a couple of really key facts, white American women are the largest voting block in the United States. They take up 42% of the voting block. They will be the largest voting block through 2060, even when white people become a minority in this country. White women and their vote will still control 56 of the 100 Senate seats. Wow. So here we have this demographic, the most powerful voting demographic in the country, even even if we bring all the disenfranchised voters online, they're still the most powerful because of where they're aggregated throughout the country based on our electoral college. And nobody is going to have conversations with them about their voting habits outside of CNN, Fox, MSNBC. And I was like, oh, no, this isn't working. And so when I look back at what worked when we were taking celebrities to go look at global issues or when I look back and what I did in creating the television show where we took spoiled American teenagers to live with those indigenous cultures and the viewers were like, Oh wow. And putting things together. And there was no one doing that. I was like, well, let me go see what's really on the mind of these women. So I traveled to so many different um, types of zip codes throughout the country. I loved it. And I want to continue to do it. Um, So if you're listening and you want to have a listening circle, I am, I am, totally game. And what I tried to do is I, I, 
it, it was very much focused on white American women. And I tried to take that demographic and break it down into the most stereotypical, stereotypical um, variables that I could. So I spent time with like 50-year-old rich Jewish women from outside of Cleveland. I spent time with evangelicals uh, that are new moms from the South. I spent time with Catholics, Republicans, people all across the socioeconomic spectrum, all across the gender spectrum. Um, and I asked really difficult questions about power, proximity, privilege, the things that they wanted to talk about, the things they didn't. And I just kept pushing. My front line still was then, still is today, is to ask those questions about self-worth in the context of being a citizen, in the context of being a particular country today. And it was vapid. There was a total void. So what, what did you hear? What, what, do you, what do you mean by the void? What were some of the things that you heard that surprised you? Well, one of the things that I, that was, that my research confirmed was something that I had heard from other primarily academics and other activists like Robin DeAngelo, the author of White Fragility, who has mentioned that white progressives are extraordinarily dangerous. And I didn't appreciate that until I got into conversations with progressive women who were performing in ways, and I use the term performing very intentionally, who were performing their understanding of the world, and I cringe at this term, but their wokeness, in ways that some of the more conservative women that I spent time with who had always voted Republican, who had voted, who um, voted Republican in 2016, they weren't so quick to demonstrate that they have a good handle on their biases. So what I found was a level of insecurity around self-worth that I think is continuing to bubble up even more, that this um, lack of conviction that there is a, that you are needed, which is really, really important to me is this idea that, that, that people and women know that we want them on the front lines with us, that there's this, well, I don't, I don't know enough. Who am I to make a positive difference? What if I do something to screw up? So there was a lot of that broken record pretty continuously. So that was similar. The difference was very much, um, the humility that the different political parties were willing to discuss, again, related to race, gender, and class. Some of the things that were the most shocking to me, the most shocking to me, which is my favorite question, and I encourage listeners, if you do nothing else um, after this uh, podcast, except by the book, obviously, is ask yourself the question of what are you willing to fight for besides your kids? or your family, or your loved ones. And asking that question in that specific way forced forced participants to really go beyond the obvious. And I I won't name names intentionally, but there was one group of women who were like 75 years and older from uh, Virginia, most of them uh, politically conservative. My sense was that about 12 of the 15 participants voted for Trump. And I posed the question, what are you willing to fight for beside your children? And one of the participants' hand went up real quick and said, well, I've marched in all the anti-abortion marches for the past 10 years. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a strong pro-lifer, which we're not letting that conversation get hijacked, um, but 
pro-life, um, we're all pro-life, but this anti-abortion activist had marched for, for so long. And so fast forward. I feel like it's very important to clarify that you are either pro-choice or pro-forced birth. All people are pro-life. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that pause. It's a good piece of so, so she said, I marched in all the anti-abortion marches for the past 10 years in DC and I'm very proud of it. Okay, great. And during these listening circles, I have a stoic face. I mean, Oscar worthy stoicism. And I said, okay, file that away. And she's continued to drink her Merlot and Brie and fast forward a couple of years. I was posing the question about what it means to give back and what it means to be an active citizen. And, and they were expressing their frustration with there not being great vehicles to do that, which is something that I did hear pretty consistently. And so I started posing this circumstance of imagine if there was a woman who had two children, was juggling two jobs, found herself pregnant, and decided she wanted to terminate the third because of limited resources um, and the toll it would take on her first on her two other children. And I said, and she needed $480 to terminate the pregnancy, but she didn't have it. This is a hypothetical situation. And I posed the question to the room, would you help her? Would you slide $480 across the table to her? And they all, including this one woman who had marched in the anti-abortion march for 10 years, said, absolutely. And I said, hold on, pause. I just want to make sure I have this correct. You are an ardent anti-abortion activist, yet you would slide $480 across the table to a woman who decided she wanted to terminate. She says, yes, because abortion might not be for me. And I don't necessarily want that for my, for my daughters or for my grand, for my granddaughters. But I recognize the difficult plight that this woman is facing of a life of limited resources and bandwidth. And I said, okay, well, there's vehicles to get her $480. Like if you're willing to, we can help you do that. She says, yeah, but I don't, I don't trust any of that. I don't trust any of those large institutions. And she listed some of the obvious ones. And, and so I had this moment of like, wow. So the Venn diagram of this anti-abortion activist and somebody like me, who's very pro-choice, we overlap like 96% of the way, except for that moment of like, she just doesn't want it for her, but she's okay if somebody else does it. Right. But what's so interesting to me about that is this woman, this anti-abortion activist would literally have paid for this hypothetical woman's abortion, but will vote to defund the place where this woman could have gotten birth control to not even get pregnant a third time in the first place. So there's a, there's a disconnect here between the ways that we want to support each other and, and the ways we're voting. Well, and then, but let me see if I can thread this needle for you. The reason she votes for a party that is anti-abortion has less to do with the topic and more to do with her not feeling qualified to make an educated decision. So in the early 70s, there was a a big effort to get more women to the Republican Party. What better way to sort of touch upon the emotive strings of women than through babies, right? Because when Roe v. Wade was passed, it was passed under a primarily conservative judicial bench. 
And so what the political, what the Republican political party did is they were just like, we need more women voters because they understood the power of the, the female vote. We need more female voters. So let's just come up with an issue. Oh, that has to do with something that's going to make them freak out. Well, babies will work. And that's how they sort of hijacked abortion. And then they said, you just have to vote down this ticket. And people have been doing it for decades. Even my loved ones were like, I'm just voting down the anti-abortion ticket because that gives them the freedom to completely check out. That gives them the freedom to ask the really hard questions about the, the candidate with the best foreign policy platform or the best environmental policy platform. Because it's not that they don't care about education and environment and healthcare and all of the other things. Is that because of the way that our media is structured and the way that we get information, the fire hose is too hard to navigate. So it's not easy and simple for the average person to be able to navigate through so much of that information. So instead of trying to do it, failing, feeling dumb, being reminded that you're not worthy and capable anymore, I'm just going to defer to my husband and or my father and the party that they've always voted for. That will be the Republican party and I'll use abortion as my excuse. Wow. Wow. That's wild. It's, it's, I'm curious about where religion plays into all of this, because I think similarly to the conversation around reproductive freedoms, religion has really been co-opted. And, and then I'm curious amidst all of this, seeing how much we actually overlap in these Venn diagrams, what makes you hopeful about these women, about, about women, about us, about us changing? The religious institution is just that. It's another institution that has been working for centuries. And as we're seeing in every pew, be it in a synagogue or in a church, they're particularly empty these days. And not just like right now, but like for the past decade, there has been a movement away from organized religion because I think people are starting to call into question not necessarily the hard things that are supposed to be wrestled with under a roof of a religious institution, your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship to fellow man, human, but the role that religion does play in the larger world, the rules that it protects. Um, one of the things I get into in great depth in chapter two in particular is this checklist that we all have, we're all expected to check. It's sort of this blueprint that has been sculpted over generations, this great American pretending, I like to call it, which is a series of to-dos that are very structured primarily for women starting from preschool all the way up until they get to make the most privileged decision of their life, which I'll see if you can figure out, which and that blueprint is sporty and cute in, in grade school, have enough friends in middle school that you can pick whatever um, table you want to sit in at the cafeteria. In high school, lots of friends and you know, you're constantly asked, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a boyfriend? If you can close the deal on the prom queen title, then you know, you're reminded that you're better than everybody else and everybody else can also feel pretty bad about themselves. You move into undergrad and again, you're drilled constantly around whether or not you have 
a boyfriend, your studies tend to be a second question from your grandparents or your aunts or your neighbor down the street. Once you graduate, yeah, it's cute. Go live in one of the major cities in the country. Now's the time to do it. But you need to have somebody on your bench that is potentially going to put a ring on your finger. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Assuming you find that partner, assuming he puts a ring on your finger, then you spend the next six months or 18 months talking about the wedding, the dress cut, strapless or not, DJ or band, before the last wedding present is unwrapped, you're then asked what? When are you going to have a baby? And then assuming you can get pregnant and carry it to term three months before your first child, you are asked the most privileged question of most women in the entire world. It is a pass. It's a pass that American women get to pick up or not. You're asked what question. Is it, are you going to go back to work? Or stay at home? Mm -hmm. What kind of question at 26 or 32 is that? And I'm not interested in the mommy wars. Let's keep that in the 90s where it belongs. But this idea of you have to choose whether you're going to maintain a professional existence or whether or not you're going to raise your children. It doesn't matter which direction you take. You're then handed a bucket of guilt to pour on your head for the eternity, no matter well, what it is you choose. And let's assume you're in a heteronormative relationship. They never ask your husband that question. A man has never been asked when his wife is four weeks away from her due date, are you going to stay home with your baby or go back to your office job? So when women say to me, you know what? I do really feel like women have the same access to power and opportunity and success as men. I always go back to this question. I say, well, if women are allowed to opt out of their professional career and raise children, then why aren't we giving, extending that same privilege to men? Like that's, if you want to talk about an equalizing question, the biggest fork in the road for women in this country is when they become mothers. Mm -hmm. It is not that for fathers, period, full stop. And even in a day and age when we're so desperate to say, you know, there are men who are getting up in the middle of the night to change diapers or um, men are owning more responsibility in the house. There are studies that are coming out that women still labor four to 10 times harder than their men. Mm -hmm. And I will say this question about whether or not you're going to stay at home or work. It's sometimes people push back and they say, oh, that's, so, that's socioeconomic. It's not. I've had conversations with women on military bases where you know, they're living off of a very nominal salary for their partners and they're still opting out and they just make it work based on their salary. So women, the one of the most educated, because of access to our education system, one of the most educated, the most po uh, powerful in the voting booth, the most well-resourced, meaning American women make all of the consumer decisions for our family. They decide the toothpaste, the religion, the schools that our kids are going to go to at the, when they start having children, they're given the pass to opt out of participating in reading the headlines and participating in things mm -hmm. beyond, you know, just raising your kids or, you know, their, their elementary school. And then they opt out. And I would take it a step farther and argue, not only are we given a pass, we're encouraged because women are, as you said, we're affected by this notion 
of children and other people's children. And if women are really up on the news, we rage and we protest kids in cages at the border. So if they can keep moms removed from the news, you have less of a likelihood of an empathetic and enraged controlling the purse strings, you know, consumer base swinging political group. So to disenfranchise women, to keep women saddled with so much unpaid labor in the home that they don't have time to pay attention to the news is an excellent way to keep us numb and dumb and out of the voting booth. And, and when there's two things happening, one, there's very literally no bandwidth. I hear this a lot. And like, I am the first to raise my hand on this subject. I sometimes really struggle to get to my news. I will sometimes, and it doesn't happen till 10 40 PM, 1130 when I get in bed and I'm like, well, I could sit here and read the news or I could go to sleep because I only slept five hours the night before. So there's the, there's a lack of access to like smart, sharp, quick information. One. And then two, I remember during the, the Mueller trials, I was writing the book and I would like tap out for three or four days because I would dive into a really deep rabbit hole. And then I'd come up to be like, okay, so what's happening? And I would have missed so much that there was a tendency on my part to be like, you know what? I can't catch up. Forget it. I don't, I don't know what's happening. I don't know the players. I don't know who said, she said, I, I didn't see what happened on Tuesday. So now I don't know what happened on what's happening on Thursday. And so when that happens, our instinct, because we're reminded that unless we're getting A's on tests, including being up to date on what's happening in the news, if you're not going to ace the understanding on what's happening in this particular investigation or what's happening around the world, you're going to instinctually step out. And then you're going to feel like that's just going to snowball of, well, I don't really know. I'm not part of what's happening around the world. My husband knows more because he's reading more news because remember, he's laboring four to 10 times less than you are. So I'll just defer to what he thinks. But this idea that we can defer to someone's paraphrasing of an issue rather than form an opinion of our own based on the issue itself is problematic. And we see how it's problematic, again, if we're overlapping in a Venn diagram and we're mostly purple, yet we're voting against each other's best interests, the disconnect is literally costing human lives. And it's costing lives of women, and it's especially costing the lives of women of color. So I'm curious... Looking at all of this, where do you see after this entire listening tour, after writing this book, and I know a lot of the the calls to action and the things to do and the illuminating data is in the book, and I do want all of the listeners to get a copy and, and you know, maybe we'll all read it together, we'll book club it, we'll do something, but I wonder where you see the ability for us as white women to move, to make change, to wake up to the dissonance and shorten or close those gaps? Where, where do you see it? A couple of places. So in light of the work in progress podcast, there's so much work that has to happen on the psyche, the behaviors, the thoughts of American white women, that if we start doing, if we start raising our hand to do that kind of work on ourselves, we will inherently start to be making change. And what I mean by that is I think the most important tactic and the stance that we all have to take is that of the inquisitive three-year-old. And I reference my daughter ever in the book often because when I was writing it is when she 
first met a unicorn and we spent a tremendous amount of time debating, do unicorns like pink or purple better? And recognizing that that's a circular conversation and a debate that might not ever have an outcome. There are so many debates that are comparable to that, i.e., when does life first begin in the womb and whether or not, you know, where, what happens related to abortion or not abortion. And again, that conversation is very much connected to women's control over their bodies. So I'm not trying to minimize it to that. But the idea is that there are so many different types of circular conversations that can be had that we have to be willing to step into that, that performance of asking really hard questions. So I find myself and the specific things I offer women are is when you're in the country club, when you're at the wine, uh, when you're at the water cooler at work is when you hear something, be it a inappropriate joke or a statement like Democrats want to come and take your guns, ask hard questions. Ask posing questions. Don't show up with like lots of statistics about how any of that information is off. Just start asking questions about, oh, where did you get that information? Oh, that's really interesting. Does that then decrease the state of what's happening in our classrooms with guns? Oh, tell me more about that. I want to hear more about your, your, your understanding and your position of this particular subject. And the idea that like we have to be willing to ask harder questions of our history right? That's one of the things really important in the book is that I, in chapter three, I really dive into our understanding of one of the most revered presidents in history. And if I ask you the question, who's the most revered American president, who would, who's at the tip of your tongue? Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln is always the answer. However, on Lincoln's watch, we launched the native nations genocide. Yep. Killing millions of this country's original inhabitants. And the number is anywhere from 1 million indigenous to 120 million. And I'm surely not qualified to decide what number it is to determine whether or not it was or wasn't a genocide. And I don't use that term lightly. The bottom line is, is that we all revere this one individual, yet he launched a genocide um, that completely wiped out cultures as diverse as the Chinese to the French that had occupied this land. But and we so revere him because we revere the one good thing we've been taught since we were little that he did. Right. You know, we, it's, it's the adage of if it's always the hunter who tells the story, the lion, right. you know, right. victors get we're to tell missing the story. It. Right. Yeah. Victors so, tell the story. so they paint themselves in the best light possible. That's right. And I, it's one of, um, uh, a phenomenal scholar. His name is Mark Charles. He's the one that helped me has sort of had these epiphanies, particularly related to Abraham Lincoln. I encourage you all to seek him out. He said to me, he was, we were really diving into this concept of victors get to tell their stories. And he said, I don't know, Jenna, like what if Hitler won? What would be the story about World War II? Right. And I, I don't know how to answer that, but victors tell their stories. So again, if you look at the way that we tell the story about our history and what happened on the soil where our homes are built, where our home goods exist, where we go to get our, you know, our skinny vanilla lattes from Starbucks. That's not new. That was somebody's home and they were intentionally, intentionally slaughtered. So we've asked harder questions about our history. We have to ask harder questions about our institutions. Like, well, could I make 
is there a better way to educate our youth? And I think what's been happening recently related to how students are being educated in their homes virtually is really challenging this idea of like an in-school, you know, it's challenging all the concepts around the institutions. I mean, don't get me started on higher education right now. I really am challenging that price tag and how those very rote rules are required. So start asking harder questions of our universities, of our schools, of our medical uh, systems, of our HR departments, of paternity policies at work. Just ask clarifying questions. And then this, the thing that I believe, which I can't take any credit for this epiphany because every philosopher and most religions and poets have been saying it for eons is what Gandhi said, be the change you want, you wish to see in the world. We have to put ourselves under a microscope. We have to call into question our biases. We have to call into question how we're allocating resources in, in ways that might be taking things away from the marginalized populations. We have to think about the outcome of what we think is just a no big deal vote in a presidential election. This idea we, and I'm telling this to, I'm speaking very specifically to American white women here. We have a power that is unprecedented politically, economically, culturally. And it's important to recognize that power and then to figure out what to do with it. And in some cases, it means being hyper silent, right? In some cases, it means helping the helpers in being in an ally, an advocate, an activist, an accomplice. I break those down in the book, the difference between all of them. And in some, in some scenarios, it's what you're supposed to do with your vote, your money, how you're supposed to call into question your husband that you share the double sin Carrera tiled vanity with on Friday nights and, and the jokes that you hear, Oh, you know, isn't she hot? Oh, that's just men bonding. Well, I don't know. Appropriate. And so it's our front lines are in the room with us. You know, the questions that we have, one of the things I often reference as an example as being the, the different behavior that I saw in very liberal progressive listening circles and very conservative Republican is that, in some of the more conservative conversations, women would very quickly say, well, I have some difficult questions about race that I don't know how to ask. Like, is it Black or African-American? Now, you would never hear that question in a progressive listening circle. I mean, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, even if we talk about race, gender, and class, they're still not admitting that they don't know the answer to that. And I can tell you with certainty that we that there's no clear answer to that very specific question. So there's no single person who has that singular answer to answer that. So this idea that like being willing to ask yourself those honest questions and then going to Google. When I first started this process in educating myself about where my biases were, I really relied on my very close friends, mostly of color to help educate me. And I didn't have an appreciation for what that burden was for them. And I was like, oh, wait a second. I can just go to Google to ask me, you know, to ask the question about what's a politically correct term here and there. And um, because there's a tremendous amount of resources and there's a tremendous amount of educators that are willing to shoulder the burden of that kind of education. So um, my to readers and listeners is it feels um, so broad, but it is so urgent, the constant questioning of ourself of our history, of our news, of our institutions, mm-hmm. just over 
that over. And if you sit in the position of ever wanting to know whether or not unicorns like purple and pink and be comfortable in that constant work in progress, Hmm. we can all push ourselves uh, in the direction we need to go. Mm. If everyone listening could incorporate something, some change, some perspective point uh, to consider into their daily life to improve the ways we show up for each other, the ways we help each other, how conscious we are of each other's experience. Is there is there something that jumps out to you? There's a Quaker concept. I was raised Quaker-ish. Uh, there's a Quaker concept of how we understand any given topic, which is our understanding of any subject is incomplete at best, but we should always strive for completeness. And sitting in a place of humility and not necessarily having to perform knowing or being an expert is a really important position for all of us to be in right now. What's happening, there is more segregation in this country, arguably, than ever before, not just from socioeconomic and the way that our cities are structured, but ideologically, right? People are just hanging out with people who think just like them. And it's incredibly dangerous. And instead of sitting in a place of knowing, what if we reverted to the place that found, forced ourselves to be comfortable in the unknowing? And it, in that unknowing and asking questions about our peers who are you know, acting in very specific ways that initially we would be completely aligned with, maybe it's time for us to ask whether or not that makes sense. And so I think the immediate position is, and I hope this is a, I hope this is a relief. Like, I hope I can lift something off of your shoulder saying, hey, you're never actually going to know the answer. So don't try. This isn't a cop out, like go watch season two of Tiger Gang. But this is like, a hey, you're never going to know. So stop beating yourself up that you can't figure it out. Stop beating yourself up that you don't know the solution of how to, to solve the education system or Medicare and Medicaid or Russia-China relations. Like stop beating yourself up that you don't know, don't get it. Just be a constant student and ask the harder questions. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, do not vote. Do not vote um, in the... You're, you haven't inherited a voting pattern would be my like desperate plea. You haven't inherited a voting pattern. Yeah. God. That doesn't get passed down with the Oriental rugs. Yeah, no, please God. Um, okay. Based on the hopefulness that you feel, despite the hard things we need to look at, what is your hope for or call to action for women in the next election? What I know for sure is that this demographic, white American women are shopping in a way that they haven't been previously, in a way that I wasn't really previously either. Um, It's not like when Obama ran for his second term that I was really holding his feet to the fire, right? Like I was just like, yeah, no, of course, Obama, yes, like back to my life. So I can say with certainty, that um, this demographic is going to be asking harder questions of our candidate. And my goodness, our candidates need to be 
uh, put under a microscope too. And they have opportunities to hold themselves accountable and and raise their hand uh, and acknowledge the things that they have and haven't done um, in ways that can be great role models for how um, we want society reflected in our political systems. and so I, I can say with certainty that they're shopping and you should be. And if you have any level of angst about what is happening in the world, not just as it relates to your um, six-year-old or your 60-year-old parent, um, the most marginalized are not often protected in highly capitalistic systems. And capitalistic systems tend to be protected in the more conservative political parties. Mm. That is me inc- saying what I'm not saying, yet I know every listener knows exactly what I just said. Reading between the lines of how I hope um, the, the, the listener votes. But it's also going to get all of those people in your lives that you're like, oh, I don't really feel like talking to my father-in-law or my husband or my boss about this. Like that's the front line, right? Like you got to have those conversations as exhausting as they are. Like you don't need to talk to Sophia about her political perspectives. But I'll talk about political perspectives with people all day. Cause I think (laughs) to your point, you know, I feel like part of my purpose is to help illuminate what we really believe in for each other rather than what we've been told to believe. Yeah. My favorite question to ask everyone. So you know that the podcast is called, as you mentioned, (laughs) Work in Progress. And I'm just curious, when you hear the phrase, what is something in your life, whether it's personal or professional or political, that feels like a work in progress for you right now? I answer this question in a bulleted paragraph. Give me a second to just read what I wrote. Because last night when I listened to the opening of your show, I'm like, oh, wait a second. Here's my work in progress. Let me just read it. (laughs) I love it. I love that you've made notes. Of course you did. My work in progress is asking myself the challenging questions about how my thoughts and my behaviors are preventing the liberation of myself and of the most marginalized, how, how I can work to prevent my ego and my supremacist tendencies from making decisions or um, being the easiest option for me, whether it's in relationship with other people or relationship with um, how I consume on behalf of my family or my relationship with uh, people I disagree with. So this idea of I'm desperate to be kinder to myself as it applies to not knowing the no and taking that opportunity to break systems that I embody in my own psyche, in my own being hard on myself, recognizing that that comes from an inherited system of patriarchy and white supremacy that came over by my European ancestors at the blessing of Pope Nicholas V in 1452 that said, go take, if you are white and Christian and male, you're allowed to take anything that is not owned via person or land by another white and Christian male. You're invincible. You have the right and you're entitled to it all. And I have hundreds of years of that behavior that I have to break inside of me as it applies to my own personal quiet behaviors, let alone how I'm acting in a public way. Mm. Well, I'm immensely grateful for that 
honesty and I'm and I'm immensely grateful that you wrote this book that can really give us some of that history, some of that data, help us look in the mirror in ways that feel clarifying and also illuminating as to where we go from here. Because to me, I think a lot of people ask me when we have conversations like this, well, doesn't that feel heavy? No, to me, it feels inspiring. To me, it feels illuminating. To me, the entire point of being alive is to learn and dig deeper and evolve and grow. And and I think that this is really the most important kind of evolution for us as a, as a society right now. You know, we've got to be able to look into our past in order to move into a new kind of future. So I'm so excited for the book to come out. I'm so excited for the listeners to get to read it. And I can't wait. This work is liberating for all. This work is liberating for all. And I'm excited to have everybody doing it. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Brilliant Anatomy.